Well, let's read in Genesis 37. This is the account of Jacob. It's outside. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, notice the plural, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, little exclamation mark there in the text perhaps, because he had been born to him in his old age and he made him a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I've had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers listen he said I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me and when he told his father as well as his brothers his father rebuked him and said what's this dream you've had <laughs> your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you and his brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the matter in mind now his brothers had gone to graze his father's flocks near Shechem and Israel said to Joseph as you know your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem come I'm going to send you to them very well he replied so he said to him go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the field and asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? Oh, they've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. But when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. The camels were loaded with spices, 
balm and myrrh and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt and Judas said to his brothers what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood come let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him after all sorry and not lay our hands on him after all he is our brother our own flesh and blood and his brothers agreed so when the Midianite merchants came by his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt when Reuben saw sorry when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there he tore his clothes he went back to his brothers and said the boy isn't there where can I turn now and then they got Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood and they took the ornamented robe back to their father and said we found this Uh, examine it Uh, see whether it's your son's robe and he recognized it and said it is my son's robe some ferocious animal has devoured him Joseph has surely been torn to pieces then Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days all his sons and daughters came to comfort him but he refused to be comforted no he said in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son so his father wept for him meanwhile the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar one of Pharaoh's officials the captain of the guard what a story we're thinking about the importance of family in the Bible and uh, you could hardly find a more dysfunctional family could you this is the, this is the classic um, classic family of the Bible the uh, 12 tribes and here they are did you notice uh, there's some wonderful bits of irony in it um, I mean for example Judah saying uh, let's not kill him let's sell him I mean he is our brother uh, he's our brother so we'll sell him it, uh, and did you notice all the bit about hating at the beginning families are supposed to be loving places aren't they but this family it says they hated him for this and they hated him for that and then they hated him more and then they still hated him and then they were jealous of him so uh, interesting um, interesting take on 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 family in the Bible well let's have a look at this subject together uh, and see what we think let's pray Father in heaven you are the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named and as we begin to think about this subject we pray that you will draw near to us and make this a matter of uh, wonder and a matter of help and a matter of encouragement Uh, and um, we pray that you would do us good as we meditate in your word this evening for Jesus sake Amen well when I was planning this I knew we would be at this conference so I thought we'll just have an easy start 
and not try and do too much. So the, the title of the series is Happy Families. I thought we would just look sort of generally this evening at what does the Bible say about families and upbringing. It's a fairly simple subject, isn't it? It shouldn't be too difficult. Well, first of all, I got stuck at the first hurdle because I found I didn't really know what family means. Because the more I thought about family, the more I thought, well, how do you actually define family? So I turned to my concordance and looked in the New Testament for the word family. If you think if it's an important subject, it would be mentioned using that word. Any suggestions as to how many times the word family occurs in the New Testament? Um, have a think. Family. There's, there's, sorry. Yeah, it talks about brothers and sisters, but the, the word family, I was... So the, the, the matter of family is there, but the word family, interesting, that we have that that I read from Ephesians, the father from whom every family on he in heaven and earth is named, it's patria, which is, every other place it's used, it's, it's lineage. So Luke 2.24, they went to Bethlehem because he was of the house and patria of David. Yep, do you remember that bit? Uh, and family, a lineage of David. Acts 3.25 is the promise to Abraham. Let me just remember what it says. 325 uh, you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers he said to Abraham through your offspring all the peoples on earth will be blessed and the NIV doesn't even translate the word family in there so I got that from my concordance I think it was every all families on earth will be blessed so I haven't, I haven't even got the three that I thought I had uh, patria is used three times and one time it's used family as family and that's the only translation I could find of family so that so one feels the rug being pulled from under one's feet can what what do you uh, I've had a, I've had a go at trying to think what do we mean by family so I thought it is a social group linked across generations so you've got, I think you'd have a generational thing in family so in family you have father and mother and then the next generation which you would refer to as sons and daughters do you agree with that as family that that's part of it the question is it essential is it an accident or is that a main thing and then I think the social group is linked socially, not just across the generations, but sideways. So in family, you have brother and sister, brothers and sisters who relate to one another in the same generation. And you can add to that cousins and all the other things that confuse me. Cousins, second cousins, 
however many cousins you can have. And then you also have in family husband and wife. So they're not related across the generations. They are you know, down the generations. They're related in the same generation. Now, is that, does that get us going? Does that say everything? Is that missing something out? What do you think? Is that a helpful idea about what we mean by family? Okay, so grandparents would mean that you have another generation, so you could have multiple generations. Yeah, I'll pop that, pop that, up, pop that up in a minute, so hold that thought. Yeah. So if somebody said, what do you mean by family? So here's a question. Is it only human beings that have families? Do, do angels have families? Interesting, isn't it? We'll come to that text in a minute. So here's a thought. So people nowadays, it's fashionable, instead of saying church, to say church family. Is that a fair use? Because you don't have a, a reproductive um, relation down the church necessarily, do you? Through? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so is that saying that for it to be a church family that some of the people there have got to be the ones through whom other people were born again? Right. Okay. So what I'm thinking is when we say church family, this bit here, that idea which you all sort of sat and said, yeah, that seems to make sense. It doesn't seem to particular. it doesn't apply in that shape and form, does it? Older. Foolish. Yes. Yeah, although, although yeah, it, it, by analogy, yes, it's interesting because I, I what well, the, the Bible doesn't actually use this word church family, does it? This is my, my theory is that Anglicans use this because church, they tend to use church to mean the building, you know, St. Ebb's Church and All Saints Church, they mean the building. So they've got to make another way of distinguishing it, distinguishing the people. So they say church family. I don't really see why we have to do this, but... Um, the Bible talks about church and is quite happy to do that. It does, yeah. Having, have, let's just do a little bit more thinking around this. Um, so if this is a reasonable thought of family, so what about a single parent family? So is, that, is that a family? It is a family, but it's not quite... You see how difficult it is to sort of pin down. And then nuclear family and extended family. So nuclear family is what we, is not an exploding family, or it might be. It's, uh, it's simply mother, father, and 2.1 children, or however many children. So that's sort of a nuclear family. An extended family 
is that group and then plus aunts and uncles and grandparents that's how you do it in any western society but in the bible you would have had servants and handmaids and uh, you know you, you, we're back to sort of Downton Abbey again as, as being a household and then if we're thinking about family we have to think how single people fit into this yeah pardon Yeah, because there's, there's a generation thing, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Is that what was that what you mean? Yes, yes, yeah. So it's interesting that with the single parent family, same with family, because there's a generation thing. Though in the church family, it's only by analogy. So, uh, yeah, uh, does do you see why it's not such a straightforward thought as you thought? I thought it might be. So uh, there's something about what we mean by family I think it's worth pondering before we dive in to say what parents ought to do or husbands ought to do or wives ought to do just to try and put it in a, in a, in a context of what where the, how the Bible fits all this together so here's some thoughts now putting it in a bigger context family is there anything in God himself which links to family? Yeah, God is. He says, you're to think of me as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that seems to me to have some links with family, doesn't it? You've got that idea of generation, father and son. A relationship like father and son that we have in the human race so there's something there isn't there about family it's not father mother son and it's not father son father son and daughter it's father son spirit but there's something there do you agree with me there's something that is linking with the idea of family as we humanly understand it uh, let's look at Genesis 1 26 and 20 to 28 I think there's something fundamental here about humankind and the way we are made Genesis 1 26 to 28 Genesis 1 26 to 28 so please could Maria read that out to us in a nice loud voice
Thank you very much. Now, is there anything in that text which speaks about this matter which we are calling family? And what does it link with what? Any suggestions? Anything in this text that links with what we've been talking about under the heading family? And what links with what? I'm sorry? Parent and child. So how do you get that from the text? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, that seems to make sense. Yep. There's perhaps one or two things that's a little bit more directly from the text. Male and female. Yeah, the male and femaleness, which is pretty essential to this idea of family, that is linked to God's image, isn't it? It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in some way, the maleness and femaleness is associated with being in the image of God. Now, don't ask me how, because I don't think I know, but there's something that links to the image of God in maleness and femaleness. So that's, I think that there's something quite fundamental there. Any other things about family? We haven't just got male and female, have we? We've got more than that going on in this text. Thank you. Fruitfulness, verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number. So that, that's, that's reproduction, isn't it? That is male and female, and from male and female come the next generation. So this is part of what God told uh, humankind to do to produce children. So that's a family thing, isn't it? Now, I think those are the things I spotted. Does anybody want to spot anything else before we move on? I think those are the main things. Okay, thank you. Yes, this matter of ruling. Yeah, I, I suppose from the text it's not clear whether it involves ruling as lots of individuals or ruling as a nation or ruling as nuclear families. Um, but yeah, certainly ruling. And that comes back to the idea of imp uh, a creation of order. And... Genesis is about order, isn't it? It's about putting things into compartments or making separations between things that are different. I mean, Genesis 1, God makes the world by separating things. He separates light from darkness and the waters above from the waters on, on, uh, beneath and the water and the dry land. But God's always separating things out and, 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 and producing order where there was mm, just a some sort of jumble so yes I think we've got something I don't think you could dogmatically pr prove that from the text but you've got that sort of idea
Let's move on to Genesis 17, 3 to 6. So now we're getting from creation into the way of redemption. So we're moving on from God making everything, everything went wrong in the fall of Adam, and now God is beginning to put things right and to promise to do so. So Genesis 17, verses three to six. Catherine, please could you read that out for us? Genesis 17, three to six, this is Abram. Thank you very much. I mean, there's a lot more that could be read on there. Is there anything in that text that links with family or what we've put under the heading of family? And what does it link with in this case? Father, yes. You will be father of many nations. Father in, in what sense do we think? Because we know this, we know how the story goes on. Father in what sense? Sorry? A patriarch, yes. Sorry? Yeah, he's going to be biological father, isn't he? And then, then, and then uh, grandfather and great-grandfather. This is the sort of fatherhood. So there's a family thing going on here, isn't there? And do you remember there's a lot of, a lot hangs on whether Abraham and Sarah can actually biologically produce offspring. And that, happens, that turns out to be a considerable test of faith because that's what's involved. So fatherhood, father and motherhood, having a son is very much part of this Abrahamic promise. Yes, do we agree with that? Sorry? Fruitfulness, yes, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations come of you and kings will come from you. So it's talking about down the generations. And if you think about it, the whole plan of redemption is locked into perhaps I ought to be well it, it seems to be pretty much locked into biological reproduction yeah? if Abraham were to be a single chap and if he weren't married then this promise would not possibly be fulfilled yeah? it, it depends on his having children and then his children having children and so on yeah? do you remember the thing about Tamar do you remember, it's actually in, um, it's not actually in the next chapter, is it? It's, which one is it? 38. Well, I won't go into all the, uh, uh, in the explicit details of it, but it, it, it's, the problem is that it, it doesn't happen for her to fulfill this biological mandate to produce children 
and that is the thing that she objects to because the fulfillment of God's promise of the Christ is tied into family the family of Abraham the generations the marital relations the children and grandchildren and so on yeah so when we're talking about the Old Testament and specifically covenant that's the word that's used was it not verse uh, Genesis 17 this is my covenant the method by which the covenant propagates and develops and proceeds is through family through reproduction as I've, as I've just said and when you bear that in mind and you read the Old Testament no wonder there is such an emphasis on parents teaching their children uh, no wonder there is such an emphasis on the importance of having children because at some point the Christ is going to come and he will come in this biological fashion am I right? and you think about that that's locked into the way the old covenant the, or the Abrahamic covenant functions but I would like to suggest that in the New Testament there is a radical change it's not an utter and complete change but it does go to the roots because in the New Testament it is possible to be a covenant member non-biologically John 1, 12 and 13. You might even be able to guess what these verses say without reading them, but let's read them anyway. John 1, verses 12 and 13. So what I'm saying is, if you think about the way the Old Testament goes down through history, it's tied to biology. But if you think away, the New Testament goes on through history is not tied to biology. I mean, it can include biology. Do you see what I'm saying? But not necessarily. So, because John 1, 12 and 13 says this, which Brenda, please, could you, could you read to us? Thank you very much. So how does one join the family of God in the New Testament then? What does it say? By? By believing. By, be, by receiving him. By believing. And you notice that he emphasizes the fact it isn't through reproductive biology. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision nor a husband's will but born of God I think there's a a very important insight there regarding the nature of family and the, the place of family as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament and getting that 
balance quite right, I think it is something that we need to be quite careful about. Do, do you see the point I'm trying to make here? It would, uh, let me try and say it again. In some forms of theology, the idea of covenant is just, as it were, steamrolled right the way through Old Testament and New Testament, and it's kept linked to biology. Hence, at least one of the rationales for infant baptism. Because in the Old Testament, if you're descended from Abraham, you're in the covenant. That's the way the covenant works. And so infant Baptists say, well, if you're descended from Christians, you're in the covenant because it must work the same way. But actually the Bible doesn't say that, does it? It says that way you enter the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant in the New Testament, is by receiving Christ and by faith. And I think that's quite a profound difference am I allowed to make that point is that see Lindsay's looking over the top of her spectacles at me with that oh yeah yes yeah I shall <laughs> I shall and I won't care how embarrassing I make it for. Let's, let's, let's um, think now, let's go ahead to the future destiny of humankind. Oh dear, I didn't write down the reference. It's Matthew. Let's see if we can find it. Matthew 22, Matthew 22, Matthew 22, 29, let's do 29 to 32, Matthew 22, verses 29 to 32, perhaps Steve could read that for us please. very much okay so this is this is the bit where the Sadducees try this trick question on Jesus about uh, a woman who was widowed several times in succession and whose wife will she be in in the resurrection they say as if to make out that the the idea of resurrection is absurd because of the anomalies it would generate and Jesus says at the resurrection people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, they will be like the angels in heaven. So I take this to mean that the future destiny of humankind is that there will still be male and female, there will be maleness and femaleness because that went back to being in the image of God, but the expression of that in reproductive terms will no longer apply. And that's a bit of a difficult thing to get your head around, isn't it? Because, uh, 
come back at me in a moment, but let me just express the thought again that in the resurrection, if you're a Christian believing brother, you will still, in your resurrected body and resurrected makeup, have the characteristics of maleness, and I think that is more than just physiology, it is to do quite deeply in character and personality. And if you're a believing sister in the world to come, you will bear all the qualities of femaleness, which is not simply physiological, but goes quite deep into the, the way you are as a person. Those things will remain, but there will not be reproductive relationships or activity will be like the angels in heaven. I think that's what it's saying. Anybody want to come back, back to me on that? No, I don't think they do. Well, the, the angels are usually described as he, but it, it, it makes you think. Wait a minute, let me start that sentence again. When we think about family and maleness and femaleness, we think, well, this, this must be the same for everything and everybody. But it isn't the same for angels. So we're perhaps overlooking what a rich gift we have because it isn't just to be taken for granted, as it were. Not every creature that God has created has maleness and femaleness. Angels apparently don't. Interesting, isn't it? Angels don't have, you know, you, we couldn't, if we were angels doing this Bible study, we would have nothing to talk about because angels don't do family, apparently. So I thought those were at least some points that we could anchor to. God himself is father and son, so it's not a, an arbitrary, pointless thing. It links back to God. The human mandate was to be fruitful and multiply, which involves reproduction. God's promises in the Old Testament are uh, propagate through history, through family. And yet there is a change in the New Testament. Now, whether you want to say it's totally radical or partly or something, but there is a change in the New Testament. And the future destiny of humankind will still be human but family won't carry on in the same way as it does in this part of the human story. Okay, so a few things to think about there. So let's put those on the back burner. And I had two questions that I thought we would address. And they're these. Uh, number one, my family really messed me up. And number two, this is, I put these into the mouths of young people. Uh, we'll do better than our parents and not make the mistakes they made. So I thought so we'll have a look at those two things. Let me be honest, I ran out of time with the second one, so we'll really only look at the first one. Uh, <laughs> so here, have a think about this. My family really messed me up. No, it's, that's a quite a serious thing to think and quite a serious situation to be in. Now, you don't have to be a young person to think that. You could be an old person and you could look back on your upbringing and your 
parents and what they did to you and for you or what they didn't do to you and for you and you could get quite deeply into this thought my family really messed me up yeah so let's have a think about it and I've got two two angles on it number one parents especially fathers and then I thought I'm not sure whether I should have written that bit but parents especially fathers have a duty to pass on character forming teaching and example to their children okay I think that is a fair summary of what the Bible says here's Proverbs 1 let's turn to Proverbs chapter 1 so you might say oh, he's gone to the Old Testament but he said that children and parents was a different thing in the Old Testament I'm going to say I still think this is valid Proverbs 1 8 and 9 how does Proverbs speak okay well let's hear, let's hear what Proverbs says Proverbs 1 8 and 9 now would Ray like to take this one for us Proverbs 1 8 and 9 Thank you. Interesting the way that Proverbs speaks here. It, 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 it speaks in terms of a parent addressing a child. Now I know that I said especially fathers and this text doesn't bear that out because it says father's instruction and mother's teaching. But it, just the fact that this is how it speaks is, seems to me a significant thing. Let's look at chapter 4 verses 1 to 9 chapter 4 verses 1 to 9 this one does speak in terms of father and doesn't particularly use mother but see what it says about the value and the role of well, what's put in terms of a father's instruction so Roger could you do this one for us please Proverbs 4 verses 1 to 9 Thank you very much. And there's a lot more like that. So, w w what do you think about this? What role does the father play, and what benefits is, does the text say will come from it? What role does the father play, and what benefits does the text say will come from it? Command? Yeah. Have we got a verse for command? Yes. 
Verse 4. Yep, commands. And you will live. So you've got there the what the Father does, he issues commands, and you've got the benefit, you will live. So that's quite a strong statement, isn't it? Life and death. If you keep my commands, you will live. Yep. Anybody want to add to that? What role does the Father play and what benefits does the text promise? The Father is the... Yeah. So the Father is the one who provides the wisdom on to the next generation. Yes? Exactly. Ideally. It's an ideal picture, isn't it? It's what it ought to be. I mean, that's what an ideal is. Anybody like to go any further with the benefits of wisdom? Verse 6. Protection. Yeah. Protection, security. She will watch over you. So he's saying that if you accept this instruction, there will be a protective element in your life. Uh, there will be a guidance element which presumably would not be there unless this instruction comes and it's received. Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, the, the whole thing that Proverbs is saying is that wisdom works. It doesn't work in a sort of guaranteed 100% time because this world is too twisted for that but it does work if you accept the wisdom and live by it there is protection there is life you are preserved from all sorts of folly and damage that you might otherwise run into I mean that's what it's saying gain understanding yes gain understanding get understanding gain understanding so, so you, you might say, well, it's not literally a father, it's just the way that this bit of the Bible is, is, is speaking. And then I would say, well, it's interesting that this is the way this bit of the Bible chooses to speak, so presumably it must re be relating it to something that is wholesome anyway. So I'm saying that parents, and I, from this sort of text, especially fathers, have a duty to pass on character-forming, teaching, and example to their children. So this is saying that upbringing, sort of enlarged a little bit, upbringing really helps, really makes a difference. And I've put, if this is, if this is lacking, then it is lacking. And I think the Bible would say that, you know, that, that parents have a very positive responsibility. They can do something helpful for their children and, and that's what they do. If they don't do it, then it isn't done. And, and, and the child, in a sense, lacks that protection and lacks that guidance. Does that make sense? So, pardon? Yes, yes. Yeah, as we're saying, it, it, it's an 
this is the ideal. Sometimes the ideal doesn't happen. If it doesn't happen, there can, there, it can be compensated for. It might not be, but it could be. There might be other people, as, as you say, who are in a parent-like role. I mean, school teachers come to mind. Um, what we would nowadays call mentors, uh, family friends, uncles, maybe even grandparents. But there is that role which does do something. And if it isn't there, then something is lacking. Yeah. Yeah, and well, I, I don't. I said especially fathers, and what I was thinking was Ephesians, where it, in the New Testament it, it does single out fathers. That's why I, um, fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's not that mothers can't do this, and it's not that other people can't do this, but the ideal seems to present a particular balance towards father as being a key person in this responsible person yeah sorry Predilection meaning that they enjoy it or that they are tempted towards it. Yeah, I, I, yes, I mean, I was, it was the Ephesians one that we had referred to. Well, this was sort of off-piste for the, for the uh, references that I'd mentioned. I suppose Paul says it there because once you start saying train and teach, you perhaps also need to put in a caveat to say, but make sure you don't press it too far while you're doing that because you can overdo it and it becomes counterproductive. I think that's probably the sort of thing he's talking about. Well, anyway, that, that, that was my point A, talking about the ideal. And then I'm going to talk about B, that dysfunctional family cannot prevent the work of God's grace. So I'm going to put the other side of it. You know, family does matter. And what, what people did to you when you were little or failed to do does, does make a difference. On the other hand, God's, God's grace can make a bigger difference. And hence our reading of Genesis 37. Genesis 37, which we read earlier on, seems to me to fail in that ideal in a number of significant ways. You know, if we're thinking of family, the, the father, or I don't know, well, he seems to be rather out of touch with his family. He doesn't seem to be providing them with guidance. He hasn't set a good example. You notice that he had multiple wives if you think about the Old Testament, you know, lots of people have multiple wives. So our idea of family gets shot to pieces fairly quickly if you look in the Old Testament. 
the multiple wives thing never gets a good press it always leads to problems and here we're Genesis 37 verse 3 now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd born to, been born to him in old age so you get favoritism and, and there was favoritism between Joseph and his wives Genesis 30 verses 1 and 2 Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children she became jealous of her sister so she said to Jacob give me children or I die and Jacob became angry with her and said am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children and then he went off to do some decorating in the garden shed probably the safest place to be so it's, it's, not, it's not a happy family it's a dysfunctional family and I think Jacob could say well don't expect anything from me because because of, of the way my family messed me up my brothers sold me on eBay my, my brothers were going to were going to I mean fancy that they did they put him up well they didn't put him up for auction but they took the opportunity to sell him now you, you could imagine this him saying you know this messed my life up completely you can't expect me to be any sort of spiritual giant after after the way I've been treated and yet he is a spiritual giant isn't he he goes on to be a man of faith uh, a man blessed by God uh, a man who if you could say use the word success you could say this of if you could say this of anybody you could say it of Joseph and he says in chapter 50, verses 18 to 21, this is right at the end of the story, Genesis 50, 18 to 21, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. And Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done for the saving of many lives. And I think that that's another profound statement. You intended to harm me. You as my family completely messed me about. You didn't love me. You didn't look after me. You, you were malicious towards me. But it wasn't out of control it didn't mean that Joseph couldn't be a godly man you intended it for harm but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives and I'd like to suggest that that is a good answer to that question my family really messed me up okay well maybe there are things that you will always have to deal with maybe there are things that are limited in your life in a way that perhaps other people don't have a problem with but it isn't a showstopper it doesn't mean you can't be a servant of God to the fullest possible uh, what am I trying to say in the fullest possible way God knew what was going on and he can turn it for good. So please don't think, you know, my parents messed me up, that's me done for. Please don't think that way. Uh, go to the level of God's sovereignty. 
and take refuge and comfort in that God knows and God works all things together for good including other people's mistakes including other people's malice including your upbringing God uses it for good yeah Is that, do you think that's an adequate answer well at least it's an answer to that first question Well said, yes. Do you want to repeat it again? God knows what you're going through. He only gives you what you can handle. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, everything happens for a reason, although we might not even know what the reason is at this particular moment. Very helpful. Thank you, Archie. So that was thought number one my family really messed me up and here's thought number two we'll do better than our parents and not make the mistakes they made to which my answer is well let's hope and pray so it may not be as easy as you think that's point two let's hope and pray so I mean let's hope it is possible to learn from other people's mistakes let's hope so but don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, my parents must have been really idiots. They were probably not that different from you, and you're probably not that different from them. Uh, it might not be as easy as you think, so be a little bit humble about it. Uh, we're all dependent on God's grace, and I think that's about all we can say on that. Yeah? Let's, let's stop then.